generally before we turn the recorder on, we get a kind of an idea of where things are going. Um, and so it's good to talk for a little bit first. Um, this is your, what, second or third call? Uh, third call, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, generally, the practice of Anapanasati has been around well-documented in the suttas for a long time, but it appears that uh, while the practice is, um, let us say, a um, Vipassana practice, Anapanasati is kind of both Samatha and Vipassana together uh, at the same time, and that um, in Burma, there was uh, a technique uh, uh, given by the, to the name of Mahasi Sayadaw, which has um, mostly the noting uh, as possibly their, their hallmark or their number one way of expressing it would be um, uh, the noting method. Uh, and yet, one of the things that I have seen over time is, is that the Western students, while noting, will not do anything about it other than continue to noting. Um, so when they, uh, when they note that they're uh, in a state of ordinary mind, if they notice that they're in a state of uh, uh, dull mind, for instance, they'll do something like just dull mind, dull mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah, that, it may not. Oh, and so um, this seems to be uh, also the practice, not only through the Mahasi, but books that have been uh, read by Western teachers. Uh, TMI is very common, and that this is one of the things that seems to be missing in uh, those practices. Uh, that are rooted in the Mahasi method is uh, very, very clear uh, in a number of suttas, and that is, is that the hindrances are hindrances to be removed, not hindrances to be watched, noted, coddled, and left to their own devices. Mm -hmm. This is an, a, a major part of, of, the, of the training of the mind. Um, because if you're leaving the hindrances in the mind and just noting them, that's not much of a practice. Yeah, I mean, you, you get in tune with the bad feelings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you well, just get better at seeing the bad feelings. But we've been in the habit of bad feelings our whole lives, so we're not making much progress. Everything then about um, uh, the, the suttas, including the Anapanasati Sutta and the way that it's laid out, and also the Eightfold Noble Path, and most specifically, what is right effort. But then in a number of other suttas, it's when it's talking about specifically the hindrances, it makes sure that the students understand that the hindrances are hindrances to be removed as soon as they're seen, as soon as they're recognized. Um, 
in Sutta number 39, it has um, a group of five analogies. These, are, these analogies don't fit exactly one for one with each of the hindrances, so that there's analogy for this hindrance and analogy for this one. Whether these analogies are like everything about the hindrances, though certain analogies work really well for certain um, uh, hindrances. And so let's talk about those five analogies because then that will give the students an understanding of just how important and why we need to remove these hindrances. Okay. So the first hindrance is generally referred to as being sick and that everybody's been sick from time to time and you know that let us say you've been sick and you go to bed sick and you wake up the next morning and you feel fine you feel good the next day okay or that if you go into a hospital when you go into the hospital you go for a reason and you feel really sick so uh ever whether it's one day or two or five days later when you get out of the hospital you feel really relieved to get out of the hospital as well as that you like it that you're feeling good enough to get out of the hospital so the hindrance is like the the feeling of like um not like attachment to health or like feeling like you're unwell feeling unwell feeling sick uh, if there was one hindrance that would fit with that, it would be uh, drowsiness and or uh, um, the, the, <laughs> the poly words have been translated into ancient English, uh, almost biblical language of sloth and torpor so that it would fit, I guess, with the, with the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. Um, Torpor is easy. That's drowsiness, sleepiness, dullness, tiredness. Uh, but sloth has a whole lot more of a doubtful quality to it, uh, in the sense of why bother, or what's the point, point? Uh, and that uh, this can also be referred to kind of as laziness. Uh, but in this sense, the swamp is the one who is not taking the right effort that it takes. So it can be also like uh, thinking like you can't do something or like doubting your ability or just like feeling like it's not worth it to do Mm -hmm. something because of the outcome will be bad or something like that. Exactly so. Exactly. So you doubt your ability to do it. You doubt your uh, ability that it can't be done. <clears throat> that we have a feeling that we can't do it on our own, etc., like that. So um, the the hindrances then one analogy would be that you get that you're sick. Another one would be that you're tired, or that uh, what's the point? Okay. So the second analogy is like being in jail that you can't go where you want to go. And Bhikkhu Buddhadasa actually has a small book by the name of Prison of Life. And that what what the prison is, is is the hindrances. That's our prison because it defines who we are, it defines where we can go, 
it defines so many things that are very much like hindrances in the sense that there's a part of the mind that winds up being our own prison guard. So like putting up barriers, being like, okay, I can't go anywhere because of like this life circumstance or like I can't be happy because of like X, Y, and Z or something like that. Exactly right. You can't go and do what you want to do because you're, you're afraid or that you don't feel adequate or uh, uh, that you tear up the place <laughs> or uh, something like that. Uh, and so... Uh, being free from, from the hindrances is then very much like being out of jail so that you're not confined. And most specifically, the important quality about jail is, is that it's not just that you're physically um, encumbered by the walls, but that prison is a mindset. Mm-hmm. And part of that mindset is you've got to go around doing what you were told to do. Okay, uh, Eric. Freud, uh, excuse me. Uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, in his research, discovered this, and the Buddha knew about it also. Eric Byrne then changed the label of it, but uh, it became part of the foundation of uh, the psychological uh, modality called transactional analysis. And TA is. Uh, the study of interactions between two or three people in small groups. Like, for instance, the TA therapist has been, uh, his job is to analyze the transactions between he and his client. Okay? So, uh, within TA, uh, watching, observing, noting, uh, what's happening in the moment between two people is is a, uh, a most important um, aspect of TA from this very name. Within that, Eric Byrne had three ego states that correspond exactly to the three ego states of Sigmund Freud. He has made it useful by changing the language, but it's good to look back at the old language too. And that's just for this one analogy. Yes, I feel like is, in the case. Right, this is what we call. Well, I'm I'm showing you how this works psychologically. Mm-hmm. These three ego states are called parent, adult, and child. The child ego state is the more natural ego state. It's the uh, uh, it's where all of our feelings come from. All of the feelings of a young child then are what we experience as feelings when we're grown up. But we have other layers besides that child ego state. We also have a parent ego state, which is where we store all of our learned behavior. Even our language is built into there and all of our concepts. But this parent ego state is the voice that goes around telling us what to do all the time. Okay, so it's like you need to do this to, or like in, yeah, as the an alarm adult, you have to do off. this thing. turn the alarm off. Gotcha, okay. Uh, uh, In the right, child so, ego state, that's the like more freer one that wants to go do well, like what's the, enjoyable or? Yes, the child is, is based in feelings. And when we are little children, most of the time a little child is in good feelings. They play with their little trucks and they're curious about things. But one of the things that we do in our society with children, Jen, 
is we told them to stop having fun and do what you're told to do. Learn your ABCs, go to school, clean your room, uh, pick your toys up. Okay, so uh, the child hears all of that language from the uh, parents and the teachers in uh, the vicinity. And that's what then bring, builds up over time this parent ego state. So instead of your mother now telling you to go clean your room, you're telling that yourself. Mm-hmm because you picked up her language or you picked up her, her style. This is what we mean by the prison guard. So we're in, okay. we're in prison, and not only are we subject to uh, the walls of the prison uh, or our boundaries, we're also subject to being told what to do and not like it. Okay. Okay, so, there's a, oh, yeah. go ahead. No you're, no, you're fine. Go ahead. So the next analogy is the analogy of being, being a servant or being an employee. In the, in the suttas, the analogy is about that the servant has to get up before the master. He has to lay out the clothes for the master. He has to then uh, be the last one to bed after the master retires. Now the servant can go and, and have a little bit of life with his own. But mostly the servant's life is not doing what he wants to do. He's doing what he was ordered to do or told to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then uh, being free from that hindrance is very much like being free from uh, the schedule or being free from uh, the daily work. Now, you can see that, in fact, in one's life that though. <clears throat> Excuse me. Though the society has got it set up so that we are told things such as uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. Basically, um, we we have jobs, and we're told because we're told to have jobs, we do what we're told to do, and that uh, you could go so far as to say that our credit card or the purchases that we have made. Uh, is now the boss. Okay, so by like acquiring things that we feel we need to maintain or like I'm um, having a relationship with the things that we acquire, mm-hmm. like that relationship kind of puts us like in a way that's kind of beholden to them. Right. Can Especially I, uh, if you want more. Now you got to go work to get more. How's that different than the last one? I guess I'm a little unclear. So we've got like the... uh, They're very similar because they're pointing at the same psychological state of mind that we're in prison or that we have to do what we're told to do and that our time is not our own. Not only is our physical boundary and our behavior, but our time structuring is no longer our own because now we have to work to get things. the, The jail one's more, I think, like going back to the TA... Our, um, the, I forget the what it was it like technical analysis or what was it something Transaction. analysis Transaction. transactional analysis that's more like the the <laughs> rules that are imposed on you by your parents or like the by society that's like you must do like this in order to be um, a successful like member of society or like these are the rules that you have to follow like as a human and then like going on to the the next one of like the the servant mentality that's where like 
either with can it be either with a person or like items where we think we have to do certain things in order to fill fill our obligation to that right okay so you can see how then uh, the hindrance of wanting things and mm -hmm. uh, wanting things that we don't have put us in the position of having to work to go get those things because then we're yeah we're seeking for that thing we're like doing we're no longer doing things for ourselves we're doing things to like acquire that like item right, right. because in fact you could feel happy without that new whiz bang but because we want the whiz bang now i've got to go out and work to get that whiz bang and once mm -hmm. i get that whiz bang now i've spent all of this work i've got the whiz bang but i'm still not happy is this is this um analogy strictly towards things or like possessions about everything including ideas okay yeah okay so it could be like also my employer relationship where i think I, I have to do these things well yeah i mean i guess because they're i mean they're still just like mind artifacts they're just still things we think about so yeah mm -hmm. if we feel like we need to toil in order to like get something like external will happen that makes sense exactly so yes will we go around toiling uh, for delusionary reasons. One of the delusionary reasons is, is that if you don't work, you don't eat. And that's where they kind of got you. You could think of this, uh, this last one of being a servant um, could be something in the sense of being a slave uh, with slavery uh, being locked up, uh, chained. But now what's happened is, is that our wallet or the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the folding money becomes our, our chain. Mm -hmm. that, that we're not chained down uh, with uh, uh, physical chains to be a slave. We're, we're, we're chained by the paycheck. Yeah, because we feel this need in order to acquire that thing or like acquire mm -hmm. that object. So we have to do the things to get that even if it goes against or even if we don't particularly like need it uh -huh. or anything like that all right so we've gotten three of them the next one is debt being in debt i have been in debt several times in my life and every time the the whole point about that was to get it paid off um, to pay off for the mortgage of a building, to pay it off twice as fast, to get it down, to get it over with. Uh, uh, generally buying cars uh, for cash. If I don't have the cash, you don't buy the car. Um, this was something that was instilled uh, back in the 1950s with my dad. But nowadays, credit is really easy and that many people are really, really locked up in debt. So I don't know whether you're in debt or not, but I could ask you in the form of, wouldn't it be marvelous if you were free from debt? Do you see how valuable it is to not owe anybody anything? Yeah, this is certainly something I value, yeah. Yeah, not owing. Not being beholden, like, it's like, um, You've wanted that object so bad that you decided to 
um, I don't know, legally, <laughs> legally let it um, like force you into toiling away. Mm -hmm. So um, many things that we do uh, psychologically is to pay off some sort of mental debt. Uh, an example. Okay, so that's not strictly monetary. Sorry. In this, sorry in this case, now no, the the, uh, the physical being in debt is merely an analogy for what the hindrances of the mind draw, in okay. the sense that the debt now is like an old problem of the past that we now feel obligated to fix. So we run around uh, rummaging in the past to find objects to fix, and then we make plans on it to fix in the future. But when we're free from debt, then there, there's nothing broken that needs to be fixed. And that could pertain to our relationships with other people, where maybe somebody does a favor for us, and then maybe we feel like we need to do something for them in the future. That's one of the ways of looking at it, but also uh, you owe someone a debt simply by being in an argument with them. What's the debt in that situation? Well, you feel bad and they feel bad, and now you feel bad that they feel bad. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I felt that before, where you feel bad that you got them mad and then you need to be extra nice. Or you need to make it up to them or something because make you feel bad for it. Precisely. you got to pay back, okay? So the whole quality then of payback is built into that uh, issues of obligations. And so you can see how that whole mentality then is a mental hindrance for you to be in a good state. Mm -hmm. The last one is the analogy of uh, having gone on a journey or a long trip. I, I think in the um, uh, in the sutras it points out something like a caravan, where you've got you're going through the wilderness and that you've got all your possessions like a merchant, and then uh, uh, you wind up coming home or to uh, uh, an oasis or to a restaurant uh, or to getting at home. And once we get home, then we can rest. Mm -hmm. We can unload the camels. All of our goods are safe. Okay. So I don't know if you've done any real traveling or not, but the past few years when I've, when I've gone traveling, uh, it would be like to go get a visa on the other island, which meant that I would catch the, uh, the boat. Uh, and here's the boat. Uh, people getting in line uh, to go uh, board the boat. They've got all of this baggage. They've got a, um, a, ba a huge backpack, and then they've got a smaller backpack that they carry in front, and then they're pulling along a stroller, kind of another suitcase full of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, when one is encumbered like that traveling, we have to constantly be on vigil, constantly being on guard. We have to watch that uh, luggage. We can't just leave it someplace at a restaurant, say, to go check on our tickets. You know, you gotta, if you're going to check on the tickets, you got to take all of that stuff with you. It's quite an encumbrance with a lot of baggage. So and the baggage, so, it's not the journey that's the problem. It's the baggage in this scenario. It's the things you carry around with you. The, the, the traveling itself, just moving around is enough on its own, but carrying baggage, too, 
<coughs> That's the burden. catching the cold this morning. Oh, no. So, um, this whole idea then of these five um, analogies, this last one being um, feeling relieved to finally get home, or relieved when we're out of debt, or relieved to be finished with our servitude. Like at the end of the day, that we're, we feel relieved. Oh, finally, I can go home. Finally, that I don't feeling, have to. Yeah, the feeling, that feeling of relief is like a hindrance? No, the feeling of relief is like being free from the hindrance. Okay, gotcha, yeah. But the feeling of carrying around luggage on that journey is then. Gotcha, okay. Yeah, that's not relief. Carrying around all that okay. luggage, but, but getting home finally. Generally, what happens when people get home is that they feel they they look they sit down in a chair or they lay down on the bed and they have a big exhaustive outbreath. Yeah. And now, <laughs> after carrying all of that luggage, all of that distance, the one thing they do not want to do right now is open and unpack that luggage. <laughs> they just want to leave it as luggage so that they because they brought it home is it's good now. Okay, that sense of relief, of setting it down. Also, getting out of jail. That's quite a relief. <laughs> and getting healthy after having been sick. That's a relief. So a lot of the qualities then of um, being free from the hindrances is a sense of relief. So we sit down... To or set down to meditate, and we notice a hindrance, and we want to toss it out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess like, how do we notice those hindrances? Because those seem pretty. Like, I'm not sure if I could sit down and see, you know, kind of the rules or like kind of that parent role or anything like that. How do we get to the point where we can see like, oh yeah, okay. I'm like operating under these rules that I can't see. The first step, then, would be that we need an anchor to get started. And so we use the breath as that anchor, and we use it in a very anchoring kind of way. Um, when we say an anchor, um, imagine that a ship, um, when, when it's anchored down, uh, it may go all over the area based upon uh, uh, currents and wind and all kinds of things, but it's not going to go very far. The anchor's there to keep it, keep right. the boat in place, like it'll pull it back not if it drifts too far. Not in place, because anchors, in fact, uh, they're... <laughs> they drag on the bottom. Not to get off into too, in too much history, but anchors have had a history of how they're shaped so that they can do the job of actually anchoring because it's po quite possible for the old style anchor that the pirates had would just scrape along the bottom and the boat would drift and pull the anchor along the bottom with it. And okay. so they began yeah. to develop anchors that would really dig in. Okay. Deep. Oh wait, so they develop anchors that dig in so they don't 
drift away. Right. It's not. It's not like just throwing a rock overboard that's got a, um, a rope tied to it, because that ship will drag that rock it across has to be the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but the uh, uh, the 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 more shallow the water, then the bigger uh, the berth will be for that ship being pulled around. So an anchor really has to dig in, mm-hmm. and once it digs right in, then that ship can't pull it so much. This is what you have in the modern anchor. That's why modern Navy anchors have the structure that they do. Is the the way that they're designed is is that when they're drug along, they'll 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 dig right in, so they'll stop. Okay, uh, this is actually quite an, a good analogy then for using the breath as an anchor for our meditation, because we actually want that anchor to dig in and to help us stop the mind from wandering around. So in normal life. Uh, without doing any anapanasati or any practice at all, it very much is like our ship of life or our ship of the mind. It's just tossed by the waves, thrown this, that, and the other way. Whatever wind comes by, it blows us, and off we go. But if we've got this anchor, we can uh, add a great deal of stability to our life. Okay, so Anapanasati then starts with mindfulness of breathing, which means we're going to start watching the breath. Now, uh, the story goes, and in fact, it's, uh, uh, I would say that the, the hallmark or the very best quality of the Goenka retreat is Goenka's expression, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Okay, this is that quality that we recognize that the mind has wandered away from the breath. So that's the first thing. So can we say if the mind is wandering away from the breath, then there is hindrance? No, we can say that there are hindrances there all of the time until the meditator begins to get some skill. And that these hindrances... I'm going to define them as to two different qualities, banal and tragic. <laughs> uh, banal would be junk thoughts. Okay. Okay. But there's still hindrance in the sense that they hinder us from being in a good state. It's kind of a bad state. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting and, and kind of waiting and let the mind wander away. So... The new practice, then, is to use the breath as an anchor. And what we mean by that is, is that it's going to be an anchor uh, that's going to be uh, digging in. A lot of people, when they start to meditate, they think, oh, watching the breath means whatever the breath is doing, I just have to kind of notice it and kind of watch it. But that's the same thing as the, the anchor not catching hold. And so the mind will continue to drift. Uh, I might be reading into the metaphor a little bit too much, but like, what's it digging into? The well, digging guess... into it is learning to control the breath. Okay, the okay digging so keeping in, our attention on the breath. Keeping it on the breath in the sense that this is going to be a long, deep breath, an mm-hmm. in-breath. 
so we note each breath as is it is it in or out and what's the quality of it mostly we're going to be working with long breath so is this a long deep breath is this a long out breath is this a long deep breath is this a long out breath that gives two points of sati the, the point of sati is to know that this is i'm incoming deep incoming breath and to note this is a long out breath in the form of maybe a sigh uh, the quality okay. of the sigh <sighs> as so I'm knowing talking. like we're anchored like when we're watching the, or when we're breathing we're knowing that we're in an in deep in breath and we're knowing that we're in a deep out breath right okay, okay. so by doing that that begins to put the mind to work and what we're doing here is we're making the mind fit for work. Mm -hmm. And the way that we're doing that is by uh, taking these long deep breaths, energizing the body, and focusing the mind then on the breathing means that now when the hindrances come, they've got to come to disturb what you were doing, which was watching the breath. So now the hindrance will come, but uh, the boat is not going to be dragged by that hindrance because we are now locked in with that anchor that's dug its way in. So now that we're actually watching that in-breath to make sure that it's an in-breath and an out-breath, um, with that in-breath and out-breath, with a long, slow breathing of maybe 10 to 12 seconds per breath, there's actually quite a lot of this stuff to happen in that period of time, the mind is really fast. And it will sneak away really quickly and or um, uh, it also gives us an opportunity to pay attention to quite a lot of stuff. But in fact, Anapanasati is a complete practice in the sense that it, can, it uh, works with the body, it works with the feelings, it works with the mind, it works with the mind objects, to where many different meditation systems work with only one, and perhaps uh, the only one that they work with is not any of these four. So and, how does it work with the feelings? Is that like, um, so you take a, the time, it, like it takes a long time to take a deep in breath, take a deep out breath, so there's a lot of room for Thoughts. <clears throat> a lot of room for noticing how you feel, to notice what the mind is doing, if the mind is trying to run away, or is it settled? Okay. The <clears throat> with this technique, then, that's where that expression that the Buddha uses, Aha, I see you, Mara. Mm -hmm. So while we're taking those long, deep breaths, if the thought comes back, that hindrance, we can see it then we can deal with it directly. If that thought or hindrance comes back and we're not mindful of it, then the, the mind will just be drug away by it. Okay, so, yeah, when I notice the hindrance and I say, aha, I see you, Mara, that's the anchor pulling me back, pulling the boat back into the correct position or not the correct preventing it well, from drifting away too far or at least it's not drifting on it doesn't it not does drifting that, on. the drifting doesn't happen it doesn't go there aha i see you myra means that you're not going to be able to pull me um off of uh my anchored 
meditation technique. And then you can focus on, or then you can bring yourself back to, um, back to, you know, knowing that you're in an in-breath, knowing that you're in an out-breath, mm -hmm. back to the meditation, the object of meditation. Right. Okay. Now, um, being free from the hindrance or noticing the hindrance and throwing it out is actually uh, the word that I was using was a relief. It really feels good to let go of that hindrance. This is why the Buddha states the first jhana as um, the the rapture and or the the pity and the sukha, or the rapture and the pleasure that's born of the seclusion of the freedom from these hindrances. This okay. is a major, major. A teaching of the Buddha and it's surprising that so many Westerners don't get that because they think that their job is to watch the hindrances where oh no your job is to see them clearly enough that they are hindrances so that you can throw them out now an easy way to start identifying those hindrances is that anything that uh, that has to do with something that's not happening right here right now so if you think about uh, a person who is not right here, right now in front of you, then you can consider that a hindrance. If you're thinking about your job and you're not right here, right now at your job, then that would be a hindrance. So if you think about going to the bank, but you're not actually going to the bank, then sitting here in meditation thinking about going to the bank is a hindrance. Um, so when I, um, when I'm breathing in and out, I mean, I notice, I can notice my body, I can notice sounds, or like, at least these can be like, um, I can sensory have them in input. mind. Yeah, yes. so I can have sensory inputs. Um, hindrances are a different quality, and those seem to pull me into either thinking about the past or the future. Um, is it okay to allow the... I mean, well, yeah, it's okay to allow the sensory inputs, at least where I'm at right now. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, it's okay to have those things going on. Like, I guess if I'm, I'm allowed to allow things in the moment, just maybe not things that are out of the moment. Is that a, true to okay. say? Yeah, now we're cooking. Exactly right. Yes, sensory input. What is it that you are, um, what makes you real? What makes you alive? Why are you alive? I mean, you're not just a piece of dead wood. Though when people are full of hindrances, they start to look and appear sometimes like a dead piece of wood or maybe one on fire. But in any case, the whole quality about being alive is to be in this moment. That part of the reason why we actually want to take a deep breath, not the only reason, because we've already discussed the issue of the anchoring of the mind to the breath, but we also know that the, through deep breathing that we energize the body. We know all about science enough. See, the Buddha didn't know about science in that way. Mm -hmm. But Buddhism and the teaching of the Buddha is definitely scientific, all based upon empirical observations. And that the Buddha was not very big on uh, magical beliefs, which magical beliefs are beliefs in things that we don't have evidence for. That we're looking for real evidence. 
and our evidence is, is um, gathered through our sensory input. So the things you can see, the things that you can hear, the things you can touch, um, uh, the positions of your body, not just the tactile sensations on the outside, but there's a deep proprioceptive system built into the body so that you can close your eyes, move your body around, and while the eyes are closed, you know every position of the body. For instance, looking at the screen, uh, just think about your left hand and notice where all of the fingers are. You know exactly where the fingers are. How do you know that? That's not tactile. That's proprioceptive. That there's an inbuilt system into the body that that shows you, for instance, as part of your balance. Uh, as part of our um, uh, dealing with our center of gravity and where the gravity is, and all of that stuff happens outside of the thinking of the mind. But you can start to pay attention to it. That, in fact, you know where your body is, but you never pay attention to the fact that you know where it is. So it feels like um, sometimes that, like, my ego kind of fills up that space that I think my body's at, or, like, where my attention's at. Kind of feels like, um, I don't know, I kind of guess my sense of self brushes up against where I would expect, like, the proprioception or like my sense of my body should be and it mm -hmm. seems like there's almost like an overlay on top of that where you know it's really hard to notice those subtle feelings when um you know my mind's racing around and i'm thinking about like the past or the the future that is in fact the one of the primary mistakes that humans make is they make that um conclusion that I am the body, this is me, where in fact the body is not you. Mm -hmm. We'll go into a little bit more of that um, later. Uh, when we start to look at these aspects of um, Anapanasati that look at the four foundations of mindfulness, we then <clears throat> look at that through the situation of the five aggregates. Because the five aggregates is taking us closer and closer to what the mind really is and how it works. Mm -hmm. Eventually, then, we come to understand um, how the mind works by practicing Anapanasati. That Anapanasati and the four foundations of mindfulness wake us up to see various things that are in, in the mind. So the very first waking up that we need to do is the waking up to clean the mind out of the hindrances, mm -hmm. which actually means then, as you were saying, thoughts about the past. If you're thinking about the past, then that's a hindrance to being in this present moment. If you're thinking about the future, then that's being a hindrance to being uh, satisfied and content in this present moment. Um, going back to the analogy of being out in the wilderness with all of our luggage, what is our thought? Our thought is, sure is to heavy. get home, huh? Yeah. Or the stuff sure is heavy. You're like, yeah, better get home. Yeah, I would be. Yeah, I want to get home. Well, now that we get home, in fact, we were already at home because this is all a mental exercise anyway. But the mentality is, is, no, I'm not at home. No, I've got a job to do. No, I've got all of this burden to take care of. 
But the reality is, is that no, I can just drop that burden and be relieved that I'm home wherever I am. The here now becomes our home. And that's what we're learning with Anapanasati. And that's what we're learning with Anapanasati is to come out of the past, come out of the future, come out of our wanting things, come out of our being disgusted with things, come out of our tiredness, come out of our confusion, come out of our doubt, and I just named them all, into a state of happiness, mm-hmm. into a state of, I don't need to feel any of that way. You see, we feel that way because we're in the habit of feeling those ways. These hindrances were built up from childhood and been reinforced as um, bad habits. And the, feel, and the hindrances themselves can manifest uh, though they're in these five classes, they can manifest themselves as purely thought, even uh, thought that can be very heavy or grinding in, or it can be the kind of thoughts that just float around. Or a hindrance can be a feeling, and it can be a feeling of mild um, dissatisfaction or it can be in the form of something big like anxiety or anger or grief, sadness, and most uh, deeply of all is the, is the feeling of fear. And that when a student is sitting in the meditation hall, uh, it's a fairly safe place. There is not a, a barroom brawl going on in the meditation hall. There's yeah, no guns, there's no knives, there's no bombs, there's no politicians. <laughs> you can expect the walls not to fall down, fall down on you. <laughs> you know, it's like a safe exactly. place to be. It's a safe place. And yet when the average new meditation student goes in and sits down in that very safe place, the one thing they do not feel is safe. Yeah, I, they I feel agree. That's my experience. They don't know what to do. They think that they're on the spot. Nobody's put them on the spot. The feeling of being on the spot was something that they felt from childhood. Code the parents will put the kid on the spot, expecting him to perform for the pleasure of the adult. Well, that happens in our own mind, too. We expect ourselves to perform. Okay, so here that new student is sitting in the meditation and he's anxious and he's uptight and he doesn't know what to do. But while his mind is there, that parent is telling him, oh, we'll do this or do that or this or that and the other thing. It's good now for us to become aware of all of these orders that we give ourselves as passing thoughts through the mind. That's really interesting because it's like, when you sit down and even when you first start trying to focus on the breath, there's still, it's not like you're getting pulled away by hindrances, like the hindrance is already there. And mm-hmm. that we kind of have to parse that out as we go along. Mm-hmm. Exactly so. So in this regard, um, in the beginning, we have to take a little bit of control of the mind in the sense of waking up to recognize all oh, the mind has wandered away from the breath. And then we come back and we take a deep breath. That deep breath then is now 
our only full, real, solid control that we're taking on. That most of us feel like we're out of control in our lives, and taking control of the breath is the first thing that we can do. We can take control of it by taking a deep breath. It's actually quite easy to do, and to take, and then let it out as a sigh. Ah, that's actually quite easy to do. Uh, I guess, like, technical question: Should I be like letting it out as a sigh, like out of my mouth or out through yeah. my nostrils? Well, breathing in is better to do with uh, uh, the breathing in through the nostrils because of all the anatomy that's there. Yeah. Cleaning the air, warming the air, <coughs> to where mouth is an alternate because of all of the stuffiness that can happen in the nose. But when we do breathe in with the mouth, then the, the mouth gets dry. We take in moisture from the mouth into the lungs that shouldn't be there or don't need to be there. That in fact, we want to uh, breathe, if, if we could do it this way, Breathing into the nose and out through the mouth, or out through any way at all, but uh, um, uh, out through the mouth, is more healthy than breathing in and out through the mouth, because we want the the, the lungs to actually empty themselves of excess moisture, um, um, carbon dioxide, um, microscopically uh, sized. Uh, broken down molecules. For instance, adrenaline breaks down into the blood and then is uh, normally expelled through the lungs. And if not, it's taken care of through the kidneys. One of the things that I have felt recently because of coronavirus uh, uh, putting two and two together is, is that I think that a lot of kidney problems that people have in their lives is because they're not breathing well. And because they're not breathing well, they're putting extra job on the kidneys to do the cleaning that their lungs could be doing for them instead. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I didn't know that we expel anything other than like gases, or hadn't yeah, hadn't thought much about that. So uh -huh. it, it's, as long as we're doing deep breaths, I guess like uh, it doesn't matter. Out breath is either out through the nose, out through the mouth, just as long as we're emptying. It doesn't really matter. But we want to breathe in through the nose if we can, because that will prevent all of the moisture of the mouth getting sucked into the lungs. That makes sense. Okay. So with that breathing in and, and out like this, we're actually learning to control the breathing. Now let's go back to the mind. If we can work together with the feelings and the mind we, by saying, I see you, Myra, and out you go, now we're cleaning the space in the mind to have the kind of thoughts that we would prefer to have. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, I'll introduce the concept of wholesome and unwholesome thoughts and put the, the hindrances, all of them, into the qualification of unwholesome thoughts. And then there would be the qualification that we'd call wholesome thoughts. Now, here's how we define what is a wholesome thought and what is not a wholesome thought. The wholesome thought is going to help you stay in the, in the calm, happy state that you're in to help you develop that uh, state. And an unwholesome thought is like a hindrance is going to pull you out of that state. Okay, so... Okay. Go ahead. I, I, okay, so one when I, 
when we met like three weeks or two weeks ago, talked to her the first time, you were like, Lion, you were talking about like Lion attitude. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, when I was sitting down to meditate, um, I was like, okay, what would that feel like? And I recalled uh, some thoughts in my life where I felt kind of accomplished or not accomplished, but like, I felt like, um, you know, I did something really cool. Like I used to be on the kayaking. So I was like, Oh yeah, I just like went yeah. down that waterfall. Uh -huh. so I was like, Oh, that felt really good. And then, so it's like, would that count as like a wholesome thought? Yes. Or like, absolutely. Okay. Because it brings you into a wholesome state of mind. Yes. I would recommend that for students that if you can remember a time in your past, that was very joyful or, um, uh, very rewarding for you and that you like that state then sure remember that thought so that you can put yourself back into that state rather yeah, than remembering all of those thoughts that feel that make you feel bad because you're if you if you cracked up in that kayak let's say that you had 10 good kayak trips and then you cracked up five years later you're going to remember that crack up and you're going <laughs> to not remember the 10 good trips that you did have Another example is the kid's writing on the wall. He's been writing on the wall for 10 minutes, and he's really enjoying himself. Mom comes in, and she sees him writing on the wall, and she scolds him and makes him feel bad. He'll remember now not all the fun he had writing on the wall. He'll now remember getting picked on. Yeah. Okay, this is a survival technique that we have. You can see that that's natural for us because our whole point is just staying alive. The kid learns, don't write on walls, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't remember, writing on walls is a lot of fun. Yeah, he remembers, it's like, no, I'll get scolded and like, exactly. no good. Okay. So in this regard, we tend to remember the bad things that happen to us. Mm -hmm. So intentionally remembering the good things so that we can feel good along that way is an okay thing to do. But the wipeout or the mom scolding the kid for uh, writing on the of the wall, that's something that we don't want to bring into meditation. Yeah, you wouldn't want to recall that time you like got a bad grade on that exam or something. <laughs> you felt really bad. You want to replace it with something that's like not in the realm of hindrances. Right. But mostly we want to take that uh, that remembrance of the kayaking into the feeling that you had on, at the kayaking right now. And now that in this present moment is the object of the meditation is how that, how you're feeling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It felt, yeah. I wouldn't try to like dwell on that, but yeah, it's like, okay. Yeah. I, I noticed that feeling. It's like, okay, that's a good feeling. Uh -huh. um, and then it kind of stuck around like, yeah. And I could like do the, go back to the breath, um, do some breathing and then, yeah. So now, now, some people who are listening to this, uh, they just heard me, and then they'll say, wait a minute, I thought you said making the breath as your object of meditation and the anchoring and all of that, and now you're saying, no, other things are to be the object of meditation, and the answer to that is within that 10 or 12 seconds that it takes for that cycle of the breathing, we have lots and lots of time, and the mind is very fast. So we can, in fact, during that time, we can do kind of a quick inventory. Like, while I'm breathing in and breathing out, how do I feel? 
what's going on? Check things out. Do I, you know, uh, what kind of thoughts am I having? And then we can throw those kind of thoughts that are not good out and keep the wholesome thoughts. So the kind of thoughts that we would be, that we would immediately consider wholesome. And this is something that I want you to experiment with. What's wholesome and unwholesome for you? I can only give you indications of that. You've got to figure this stuff out for yourself. Okay. So what is wholesome would be the kind of thoughts that have to do with the here now. What's going on around you right now. The kind of thoughts that are unwholesome would be the kind of thoughts that are not here or now. But in the past and the future, wanting things we don't have. Uh, trying to solve arguments that we've had in the past. Those are the kind of thoughts then that we're going to draw a line and say, no, those thoughts we're going to shove out when we catch them and we're going to come back with our breathing and with our um, ability to think the kind of thoughts that we want to think. Mm -hmm. Now, if we go deep, what people begin to say a deep, deep meditation in the sense of um, the correct practice, we will not be able to box in, him in, hold in the mind down to one or two words and then get it to completely go quiet. If we can't do the simple job of deciding which thoughts are going to be wholesome and which are going to be not wholesome, and not only that, but that wholesome versus non-wholesome is something that we can live by. To where deep jhanas, people are not walking around in deep jhana. That you just don't do it. <laughs> okay, I thought that was that's what I was going for. <laughs> yeah, that we want the kind of meditation that really transforms our whole life, not yeah. something that only gives us value while we're squatting on the floor. Exactly. And so we don't necessarily need then to develop these really really deep states. What we need to develop is to be here now, immediately, happily, quickly. Okay. And we so do that. These, these oh, are the right. skills to be developed. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at, you know, letting, um, letting in like wholesome thoughts versus it or not letting in unwholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at um, when I notice a hindrance, casting it out. By saying, aha, I see you. And then I'm focusing on the breath to bring me into the here and now. Because that is wholesome. Like the, the here and now is wholesome. Mm -hmm. And getting a better understanding of like feeling of, I guess, my body, like the senses, like uh, sensory inputs versus, you know, projecting into the future, right, projecting right. The one that's up here um, is the one... Um, in, within Buddhism, they normally refer to it as six sense doors. There are six. Mm -hmm. There is the uh, tactile, and they don't make a distinction between tactile and proprioceptive, but we have the sense, we have olfactory, we have taste, we have eyes, and we have ears. And then we have good old number six, which is mental. Now, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I know about all the five, but I don't know about the mental. That means because I don't know about it, it must be really highly special. No, the mental is, in fact, the problem. 
is because we spend far too much time in the sensory input that's based upon digging in the past and, and, and building things in the future. Our ideas, our uh, illusionary, our magical thinking, all of that comes out of that sixth sense. Mm -hmm. But the five senses are real. There is a different quality, a much different quality. Okay, so later when we get into teaching how the mind works, uh, through Paticca Samapada, we'll, we'll see how that actually has its, its, a, a value to it. But in, in the, uh, the stage of practice where you are now, recognizing that, oh no, I actually do have the ability to decide whether the thoughts are the past or the future or outside of where I am now as opposed to what's happening right here, right now. Now, there's another group of wholesome thoughts that I will tell you about, and those are the kind of thoughts that would have to do with things that are timeless. Timeless things like noble things. Okay, like this is suffering. But in fact, when we say this is suffering, the thought of this is suffering is generally because we're looking at hindrances. And so we begin to apply the Four Noble Truths uh, through our thought process. This is suffering. Or when we get into the Third Noble Truth, when we can relax and, and have a deep sigh, then we can remind ourselves, yeah, this is Third Noble Truth. This is it. By timeless, do you mean like... Uh unvarying, like kind of constant? Well, the truth itself is noble. In the sense that there has, as long as there's been humans, there has been human suffering. Mm -hmm. As long as there have been humans, there have been times when a human didn't suffer. It's like a, yeah, okay, it's a truth. It's a truth, exactly. It's a noble truth because it's always there. And so this is something for instance, when we begin to figure out personality view, like who am I? We're not talking about it like who am I from a uh, past or a historical perspective, but rather what is the quality of being a me right now? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we can in fact incorporate more noble things into our wholesome in the sense of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, the um, uh, thoughts about right effort are better than thoughts about Aunt Susie. Thoughts about sati, thoughts about uh, right attitude. The very things that I have been talking about then are the noble things that you should be able to talk to yourself about also. Because they're, yeah, okay. they're, they're exhilarating, they're liberating, it makes you feel really good. I can do this third noble truth. Aha, Nibbana, I got it, I got it. <laughs> yeah, they're based off of like a, a foundation or like a truth or like something that's, you know, timeless, like you're saying. Exactly. Um, are the, I guess like I tried meditating on the Brahma Viharas a long time ago. I guess like particularly like compassion. Um, and it felt, uh, kind of different. I'd almost say it would. It felt kind of timeless. Are those like kind of a reflection of the Four Noble Truths in any way? Um, yes. The just a tiny short history. Oh, yeah. Sorry. The Brahma Viharas existed before the time of the Buddha. 
many people practiced the Brahma Viharas because they were all, everyone was looking for, uh, for um, liberation, moksha, freedom. Uh, and people did the jhanas, people did the uh, uh, austerities, and people did uh, metta, Brahma Vihara meditations. And none of these were satisfactory, according to the Buddha. He was looking for something even more than that. Okay. But once he uh, uh, found out what was, what was real, the Four Noble Truths, the Eight Four Noble Paths, he then brought in and incorporated these other things into his system so that the Brahma Viharas he made more complete. The Brahma, if someone practiced Brahma Viharas in and of themselves and on their own, then they can gain some value to it, but it's not going to be completely liberating. That makes sense. They're like maybe an aspect, but not the whole truth. Right. It's, very, it's a very beautiful tool. An example of that would be training wheels on a bicycle. Training wheels will help you really get started in riding a bicycle. But if you're going to ride, ride Tour de France, you're not going to have training wheels on your bicycle. Yeah, okay. Yeah, thanks for that and thanks for that information. Yeah, it sounds like they're, um, yeah, just not the whole picture. They're, they're part, I mean, they're like an aspect of Buddhism or they're like an aspect of the truth, but like not, um, okay. you can't gain everything from them. So, metta um, has to begin at home. Like I said, I don't want to give you a great long detail about it. We can talk in detail later on this. But yeah, you sorry can for think the of, of metta as, aha, I see you, Mara. That's a kind of metta. That's, okay, sorry, I have one last question. So, okay. like, the, the aha, like, it's a kind of aha. It's not like a, you're awful, like, get out of here. It's like a meta aha, like, aha, I it's see a, you. It's a meta aha, right? I, it's, it's, it's like a, um, uh, a friendly older brother as opposed to a nasty uh, parent or teacher. Yeah, it's when he was sitting high. under the Bodhi tree, he didn't whack him away with a stick. He was like, aha, I see you. Like, yeah, aha, I see you. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Aha, I see you. Very friendly. But in fact, everything that we practice has to do with friendship. To become friends with your um, uh, hindrances, to know them. To chase them away like uh, uh, naughty little children or um, uh, gnats that we kind of brush away like that. We don't hate gnats when they come. <laughs> Some people do. But when your heart's full of joy, they're just there. Okay, so let me, let me sweep them out of the way. All right. So the hindrances and most specifically to learn to become friendly to our instincts because the, the, the hindrances come out of the instincts. So that part of you that uh, brings up fear, we don't want to kill that part of it. What we want to do is to manage it so that uh, fear comes at the appropriate times, not with false positives. Great. Okay, it's like a pet dog that's barking too much. You want to go check out what the dog is barking about and then tell the dog, call him off and send him down, boy, down, boy. But we don't want to kill the dog. 
Yeah, we're not locking them up. We're just building a better relationship with them. Exactly. And so when we build a deeper, better relationship with ourselves, that's metta. When we begin to develop right, noble view, which is uh, the, the basis of the Eightfold Noble Path, one's right, noble view is to expand our viewpoint to include other people within our view so that we don't see me and him, we see us. Just like if you had anger towards, if you feel anger rising within yourself, you're not going to like beat it up or anything. Or if you're, if you think somebody else did a bad thing, you know, you would mm-hmm. just give them kindness. You would be like, you know, I really wish out of like the deepest part of my heart that you would be well, as opposed to. Right. Another aspect that we can look at is is that uh, compassion is not the same as because he feels bad, I'll feel bad too in unison with him. It's no, he feels bad and I understand deeply how he feels. I've been there, done that, but I'm not going to feel that way now. Mm-hmm. Because if I feel that way now, then it's not uh, compassion I have for him, it's pity. In the sense of the rich old lady giving a dollar to the hobo, not because she's trying to help the hobo, it's because she's trying to get rid of the hobo. Mm-hmm. It's so just like, they, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're giving it to him to like keep him out of sight versus, yeah. no, uh-huh. let me like give you, like, let me help you out. Here's a blanket, like, let me invite you to my home mm-hmm. or something like that. Because through that compassion, basically what we need to see happen is to cheer them up rather than us joining their feelings. And the same thing with Mudita is is that uh, many people see it in the sense of if two people, if I want a job and this other guy that I'm working with wants the job because our uh, boss is getting a promotion and one of us is going to get his job, and the other guy gets the job, right? Mm -hmm. Normally the individual me is going to feel bad, feel jealous, feel resentment which means now we're setting up to destroy the relationship with my new boss, my competitor. Yeah. But if I can take him out to supper, if I can uh, uh, congratulate him profusely in front of everybody else and the next morning bring in donuts and that kind of stuff, then that's going to fit me in really close and good with him, right? Yeah, you want to be genuinely happy for him, not even just like the trappings of that either. Right. Now, that's normally the way that Karuna is taught, but I'm going to give you the upside down of that. And that is that it's our job to be happy whether he gets the job or not. And let us say that a third person got the job, and now you and he, he feels bad, but now I can go and cheer him up. Mudita is not me trying to get my good joy out of someone else. My job with Mudita is to go spread my new joy that I found through meditation. So it's joyful for them to, regardless of the circumstance almost? Yeah, because you don't have to feel bad. I can't think of any circumstance that requires you to feel bad. Okay, yeah. So if they get the job, awesome. If they don't get the job, well... Hey, that's great too. You'll find something else. Oh, hey, I'm good without it. Good without it. Yeah. I was good to go without it. Then I wanted it and I felt bad, and now I don't get it. I'm going to continue to feel bad, or I'm going to go back to the state of awesome. I'm okay without it. 
okay. Yeah, so it's like there's an independence of the outcome there. Mm -hmm. Regardless of the outcome, I'm, I'm happy for you. <laughs> exactly. And in fact, when I say I'm happy for you, that's almost always a social uh, white lie. <laughs> If you genuinely feel happy for the guy, he'll know that without you having to tell him. Yeah, they'll know by yeah, they'll know by like how you act. Mm -hmm. So the last one, upeka, is uh, translated as equanimity, and the way that I uh, describe that for students is that it's like sea legs. Mm -hmm. That um, we we. We tend to want stability in our lives, which means we kind of want our ship docked. But a, a sea captain on a, on a small yacht, he can go all over that ship while the waves are going back and forth. He's got no trouble. But a landlubber who goes on board that yacht, he's going to be sick. When the rock goes this way, he's going to go all the way over. He may even fall over the side. He just doesn't have the stability yet. Okay. Guess what? Life is like that. Life is like being at a ship at sea during some sort of uh, gale. Yeah. And, and we need to learn to have our sea legs because anything can happen. A Nietzsche. A Nietzsche is going to come. Yeah, you don't just want to get like, tossed around on the boat all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we don't want to be legs, tossed around on, the on, the boat, on board our, our ship of life. Yeah. If whatever happens to that ship of life, we're going to maintain our equanimity or we're going to keep our, our balance, our sea legs, mentally. But you can also see that the Brahma-viharas are actually more social to where Anapanasati is more individual within one's own mind. Yeah, that makes sense. They're, they're more outward so focused. So in that way, then you could say that Anapanasati is the method whereby we can actually put into use and into service uh, the Brahma-viharas without having to have a specific practice of Brahma-viharas. The Brahma-viharas are almost kind of the outcome of, of proper Anapanasati practice. We can make, through Anapanasati, we can make ourselves the target of the Brahma-viharas. Mm -hmm. In other words, where's your joy? If you're going to go out there spreading your joy, where is it? You got some? Yeah, yeah you got to have it yourself. I got some joy. Let's go spread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to have it before you can spread it. Exactly. Exactly. So this is the practice of Anapanasati, is getting that joy, coming out of those hindrances, finding a beautiful uh, state of mind to be in. And now, through the Brahma-Viharas, we can share that state of mind with others, as opposed to the opposite. It was when I'm in hindrance, and any old bad person, let's say any old person who comes along that's in some sort of bad mood, they'll put me in that bad mood too. Because why? I'm not mindful. I'm not watching what's going on. But if someone comes who's in a bad mood and I'm in a joyful mood, then I'll see it as my task to bring him into my joyful state. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, you have your sea legs, or like, yeah, you're able to like ride the waves of like whatever you know they're bringing to the table. 
and then you also want to project that and expand it to them. Excellent. All right. So let's go ahead and finish this conversation now and give you a chance to go and and practice this more. Now that yeah, we have a ton to work on the five hindrances. Now you say, okay, now I know what they are. And my job is to stay out of that and stay into the present moment so that I feel like that uh, I'm out of jail, I'm out of the hospital, I'm out of work, I'm out of debt, and I'm out of travel. Great. Yeah, I think I have a very, very clear goal. Thank you. All right, Clinton. We'll see you. Yeah, see you later. Have a good evening.